Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On Saturday, October 28th, 2023, Matthew Perry drowned in the hot tub of his Los Angeles area home. Tina Turner, the iconic queen of rock and roll, passed away after a long illness at the age of 83. On September 1st, 2023, Jimmy Buffett, the iconic American singer, songwriter, business tycoon, and philanthropist, died from complications from Merkel cell carcinoma. Sinead O'Connor died at the age of 56. Talented, polarizing, complicated, and uncompromising until the end. On July 30th, 2023, Paul Rubens, known the world over for his creation and portrayal of the iconic Pee Wee Herman, died after a six-year battle with cancer. Welcome to the Last Days Podcast. I'm Derek Kaufman here with Jason Beckerman. And Jason, this is our year-end episode where we're going to take a look back at some of the biggest episodes of 2023. You know, Jason and I wanted to take this opportunity to reflect on the past nine months of this journey and, and starting this podcast and thank everyone for coming along with us. It's been very gratifying to see how this podcast has been picked up. And we wanted to recap where we are now here at the end of the year And I thought no better way to start this podcast than kicking it off with what was the biggest news story in our field of the year. Yeah, any discussion of the biggest deaths of 2023 begins and ends with Matthew Perry. Obviously, Matthew Perry obtained great fame playing Chandler Bing on 10 seasons of Friends. He was not only famous, but became a beloved character on the show, and he personally became a beloved actor His trials and tribulations that happened uh, later in his life are well-documented. Chronic drug use, his later public appearances, including the uh, much uh, ballyhooed Friends reunion a couple of years ago on HBO Max, uh, really showcased how much trouble he was in, the difficulty he had speaking, the way that he looked. Everybody knew that he had really suffered ever since Friends went off the air. But despite all of that, the shock of of his passing and the way that it went down with him found in his hot tub, face down, although we had known he was a troubled figure, we knew he had uh, issues with drugs and substances. He was very open about this. He wrote about it in his memoir. Nevertheless, to be taken at the age of 54 years old on the heels of this friends reunion, all of these warm feelings about, you know, looking at his career and him actually seeming to have some of his life under control. You know, he had been sober for a number of months prior to his passing. And the day he passed, he played a full round of pickleball. So this was a guy who was trying to battle these demons and seemed to be winning in some ways before this tragedy struck. So in mid-December, the coroner for L.A. County issued the report that he had died from the acute effects of ketamine. Uh, He had been undergoing these therapeutic ketamine treatments to treat his anxiety and depression for a long time. Apparently, he had his last infusion therapy about a week and a half before he died. But nevertheless, despite the fact that that therapy would no longer have been in his system at the time he died, the coroner found that there was a tremendous amount of ketamine in his system, leading to the inescapable conclusion that he had been self-medicating even outside of the doctor's purview, and that's ultimately what killed him. I think that's right. We're going to see a conversation about ketamine, I'm sure, in the aftermath of his death. You know, it's a recreational drug that also has these therapeutic effects. Obviously, Matthew Perry got himself into some trouble after he used it for therapeutic reasons, uh, possibly just recreationally. He was taking some ketamine. People do that. 
and it was just uh, one dosage too much and he passed away. But this story for us was massive and 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 rightfully so. This is exactly sort of the the um, type of story that would gain this much traction. You saw all of the friends came out. They gave these sort of somber, reflective sort of statements about Matthew Perry, and I think his death will still sort of resonate for a while. That's right. I wanted to move on to. You know, this was a big, big year, but in my mind, the the death that sort of saddened me maybe the most was the death of Tina Turner. Tina Turner is an absolute icon. In May of this year, she passed away from a long undisclosed illness. Uh, she passed away in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. You know, she had a stroke in recent years. It's unclear exactly what caused her passing at the end of her life. But this truly was a groundbreaking death in, in, in this podcast and just sort of around the world. You know, she was the queen of rock and roll and she was so well known to different generations. I think to Harvey, Tina Turner meant something when she used to perform in the Ike and Tina review and she was so high energy and they would get up there and she would dance in her frilly dresses and, you know, belt and dance at the same time. And it was sort of so full of energy. Then the second half of her life was quite different. It was defined by her divorce from a very abusive husband, Ike Turner. Yeah, well, I mean, she had so much going. So she comes from nothing. She meets and marries Ike Turner, and the two of them build her brand, Tina Turner, one of the most successful artists in the world. This horrible breakup, this horrible divorce that is marked by one of the you know most horrific tales of domestic abuse and domestic violence you can imagine. She wrote about it extensively later in her life about the kind of captivity she was in for so long. But she breaks free from that. And then in the late 80s, she goes on a second tour, a, a second level of fame. Oh, redefined her legacy. That redefined her legacy and probably made her vastly more famous, the private dancer era that made her more famous, the Mad Max Thunderdome era, more famous than she had ever been before. And I think largely because of what she had gone through before, she was beloved by everybody and she became a megawatt a-list star. You know, she point. was so triumphant during the second half of her life when she emerged from that domestic abuse saga in her life and defined her career anew and really came out as this strong, powerful woman. She had the big hair. She was in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. I mean, she was omnipresent and she was already in her 40s and 50s That's at right. that point in time. I think we live in a particular era in, in our society where people tend to wallow in their victimhood. They sort of retreat from it. Tina Turner defined the way to really rise above sort of the story. She wasn't allowing the narrative to be Ike beat me and and therefore I yeah. sort of was out of the limelight. She took it and she ran. And then she marries another man. She moves to Switzerland. She lives a European lifestyle for the waning years of her life. By all accounts, extremely happy in the new life. She overcame a tremendous amount in her life, perhaps more than any other huge star, given how she was brought up and then the, the ordeals with Ike. And the greatest set of legs in history. In I, history. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Tina Turner was known for those legs. That's right. Let's move on to Paul Rubens, a complicated figure. Paul Rubens created one of the most iconic and indelible characters of the 1980s, uh, Pee Wee Herman. Everybody knows just what Pee Wee Herman looks like. I dressed up like him for Halloween, an homage to the, to, to uh, his character. With my horrific Pee-wee. Tina Turner by your side. That's yeah. right. That is, that is actually true. Um, he battled long illness. Uh, he died at the age of 69. He was very uh, quiet about his illness, but nevertheless succumbed to the illness at 69 years old. His personal life became very, very public in the early 1990s with an awful incident where he was caught exposing himself in an adult movie theater, arrested. And that threatened to define who he was. And in many ways it has. Look, we everybody will always sort of 
you know, this whole like the family feud, you know, the number two answer on the board is what happened in, in the early 90s in the, in the adult theater. That's right. But number one is the creation of Pee Wee Herman. But nevertheless, Paul Rubitz suffers this really humiliating event in the early 90s. But he came back and he continued to portray Pee Wee in every medium in which they would have him. And he, I think, by the time that he passed, really had overcome it and had become somebody that we look back on with great fondness. I think that's right. What's interesting to me about Paul Rubin's death is that Pee Wee Herman defined Paul Rubens for the early part of his career, and he almost couldn't shake that. He would have to come to awards events dressed in that tight gray suit with the slicked hair and so forth. But Paul Rubens is actually an accomplished, you know, thespian in his stage, own right. Actor, and he was also yeah. a stage actor and he was a comedic presence uh, beyond Pee Wee Herman. And I thought that incident allowed him to shatter the facade of I'm only Pee Wee Herman. And it allowed him to sort of take on other roles. I remember in the aftermath of, of the incident at the at the movie theater, he went on to star in a, a movie where he played a superhero and he had his hair longer. Right. And it was like, oh, that's Pee Wee Herman as well. And then he became Paul Rubens. He never really shied away from embracing Pee Wee as a huge part of his legacy, but he was no longer singularly defined by that moment. And I don't think it's in the way that he intended for things to happen. I think he probably wishes he weren't caught in a theater, but he was able <laughs> to. That's probably true. Yeah. I think in general, that wasn't a great <laughs> moment for him, but it did allow him to break free. You know, a lot of celebrities have a hard time when they're famous very young for one specific For such thing. an iconic Character. It's easy to get pigeonholed in that one character. Yeah. Broke Miley through. Cyrus with Hannah Montana. She right. had to do so many backflips to, to get not out, become to Hannah get Montana. Under, under it. Exactly right. Exactly right. I want to move on to uh, another big death. And this was very early on in, in our podcasting with Jerry Springer. This was, I believe, our very first special episode right. of Last Days. And we did it because this... You know, he passed away and Jason and I looked at each other and said, well, what do we do now? We're running this podcast where we're doing these retrospectives on all of these huge celebrity deaths. And now we have one that happened right now that we can't ignore that we just can't ignore. Right. I mean, Jerry Springer was a towering figure in culture, whether you loved him or hate him. And a lot of people did hate Jerry Springer and what he did to culture. And I don't want to whitewash that. You know, he achieved massive success with his daytime talk show, The Jerry Springer Show. It ran from 1991 to 2018, an incredible long run. Uh, there were more than 3,000 episodes of the show, and it was frankly known for fighting on stage between, you know, warring families or yeah. people with, you know, political differences. And it was built into the show sort of in a way that hockey builds fighting in that the people on stage would talk about their differences and they would often start throwing chairs. He, he laid bare what we've always known, which is that sort of car wreck television that people can't help but watch it drives viewership. And he sort of said, yeah, I'm going to make it the most outlandish, the most, uh, you know, absurd level of this kind of car wreck television I can. And people are going to watch it. And they did, to your point, 3,000 episodes. And, uh, you, you know, it's sort of before that, we knew this. We knew that the Donahue show and Sally Jesse Raphael and these people who had come along before him or at the same time were, were doing this same kind of thing, but not talking about it openly, sort of pretending they were doing real news. Jerry Springer came out and said, I'm going to put this on. It's going to be absurd and people are going to watch. Yeah, you're right. There was a real candor about him because everyone else was saying, oh, they would they would sort of clutch their pearls right. when it happened, even though you knew Sally Jesse Raphael loved these moments as well and, uh, yes. and other talk shows of the time. And what carried Jerry Springer through all this is he was actually a pretty resigned sort of, you know, 
level-headed kind of guy. You know, he used to be the mayor of Cincinnati, so he would preside over this circus, but at a remove almost. He would give his final thought about it. He wasn't mocking the people, but he also wasn't sort of loud and obnoxious like right. a Morton Downey Jr. or other types who were sort of dwelling in those same sort of circles. And I thought it just worked for him. Everyone loved Jerry Springer. There was a reason that when you went to his show, people chanted Jerry, right. Jerry, because they adored him. They were affectionate towards this ringleader of this circus. Yet he constantly mocked them. Yes. Right? His final thoughts were mocking of the people that would chant it. And yet they, they clamored to be on his show and yeah. sort of adored Jerry Springer at the same time. And it really was quite a trick to pull off. And to see him pass, it really yeah. resonated a lot in our office. And for better or for worse, he then gave rise to the Geraldo Rivera's and the uh, Maury Povich's. And that's kind of, you know, let's bring people on for the most embarrassing moments. Uh, Dr. Phil, right? That's a whole Dan Danielle Bergoli kind of thing. Bring people on at their worst moments to really dig deep into the awful side of humanity in many ways. Yeah. And I guess celebrate it. It's, it, it that, that's what he did. And look, he will remain a controversial figure. You know, in the aftermath of his death, not everyone was laudatory. Right. Everyone sort of said he and laid for, culture bare. And, and maybe there's a point to that, right? And there there could be a point to that. But nevertheless, it was it was it was a big inflection point for our podcast to see how how can we cover when the deaths happen in real time. And that's yes. what we did with Jerry Springer. Let's take a quick ad break and we'll be back after this. Are you ready to shop? Ragaton's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Ray-Ban, Good American, and Ulta. Ragaton is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for apparel and electronics, and you can save on everything you need for the summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Just go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. So uh, next on the list is Sinead O'Connor. Sinead O'Connor uh, obviously is most known for two things. Number one, she sang the seminal hit uh, written by Prince, as everybody knows, Nothing Compares to You. The size of this song in 1990, I believe, the, the, the incredible popularity of the song, it rocketed to number one. It was an amazing song. It is still, to this day, incredibly listenable. It is a really fantastic song. Greatest all, cover song of all time. All, it's not all even credit goes song. to goes to Prince. I mean, he, she got the rights. He was delighted to, that she sang it because it brought a level of popularity to the song that he hadn't achieved on his own. Probably wouldn't have. Not everybody can have hits all the time. But a phenomenal song. The second thing that she's known for is tearing up the picture of the Pope live on Saturday Night Live while screaming, fight the real enemy. And this defined the last 30 plus years of her life. Yeah. What's interesting about Sinead O'Connor, we, you know, we talked about Paul Rubens, who had an incident that he was able to spin in his favor to, to move on from Pee Wee Herman. We talked about Tina Turner, who was the victim of domestic abuse her whole life. What Sinead O'Connor did was lean into who she was. That's right. She told the world this was not something that befell her. It's not something that she regretted later in life. She went on SNL. She was a person of deep and sincere convictions. And yeah. she felt very strongly about the issue she cared about. And she did not like the Catholic Church, which, by the way, at the time was extremely controversial. In large part, she's been vindicated she in those views. Vindicated, right. We have the, the series of movies that come out, the, you know, spotlight first and foremost among them. 
le- you know, opening up to the world exactly what the Catholic Church, all the abuses that that she that's what she was talking about in 1990 when she did this. That's exactly right. And it didn't make her the most likable or easy person yeah. to be around. You know, she had some controversial views throughout her lifetime. Yes. You know, tearing up a picture of the Pope is provocative, even if you feel that the Catholic Church was guilty of many, right. many abuses. It can, it can really a lot hurt of people. people and offend them. And she was said that that's too bad. That's part of the price that we pay for calling attention to what's happening. And she did it throughout her life. I will say one thing about Sinead O'Connor. She had her trouble. She had battled mental illness. She died in a, in a very sort of tragic way uh, where she was discovered unresponsive, possibly a suicide is yeah. what the result was. And, and, and most most likely, you know, she dealt with the death of her son. So she was a person who struggled mightily during her life. And I think she was proud of being defined by that second moment in a way that sort of Tina Turner wasn't going to let Ike yeah. define her. Sinead O'Connor was perfectly yeah. fine well, with being defined it, by her stance. And just as a final note about her, she became a passionate crusader for human rights around the world. So say what you want about her, but she really was one of the great trumpeters of human rights causes throughout Europe for the last couple decades of her life. Absolutely. Now I want to talk about someone else who was defined by their work, uh, but in a very, very different way. And that's Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett passed away this year in September. Uh, He died at the age of 76 from Merkel cell cancer. It was a disease he'd been suffering with for a number of years, the last four years of his life. And Jimmy Buffett, unlike Sinead O'Connor, who, you know, no controversies here, no controversies, (laughs) you know, Jimmy Buffett was the patron saint of easy living, drinking margaritas on a beach, uh, wearing sort of Hawaiian shirts and parrot draped uh, sort of clothing and things of that nature. His fans absolutely adored him. And he stuck with that image throughout his career. He never said, you know what, I'm beyond this. I want to go write poetry. Jimmy Buffett aimed to please his fans and he marketed himself tremendously. I mean, by the end of his life, I have a a very close family friend of ours who lives in a Margaritaville and it's a retirement home and you can laugh at it and people sort of mock these things as, oh, those are a bunch of cheesy people, but they really enjoy it. And, and, And if you've sort of spent your whole life working a day job in the sun, uh, you do sort of deserve yep. to be in a tiki hut drinking uh, drinks my, with straws. My family with, uh, and I were, were in Nashville a couple months ago. The biggest bar on all of Broadway there, the main music strip of Nashville, is Jimmy Buffett's. And it, there is a line around the block, people waiting to get in. His popularity, his marketability, his brand is still as big in death as it was in life. He's got the he's got the restaurants. He's got all the various chains. He's got places where people live. He's got an entire legion of fans that call themselves parrot heads, and yep. they still do. They're proud parrot heads. And uh, no more sort of likable, lovable star, right? And, and I found him refreshing. You know, he was above cynicism. He that's knew it. exactly who yes. he was. And, you know, you can't, it's sort of undeniable. When Cheeseburger in Paradise comes on, it's a happy song. And, and yeah. you're really a, a sort of miscreant if you can't enjoy the music of Jimmy Buffett. And a lot of people in the wake of his death have been playing his songs. They've started to chart yeah. again, as happens in, in the wake of any big music personality's death. And Jimmy Buffett is a guy who'll be missed for years to come. Somebody else is going to be missed, also died at the age of 76 and also from cancer, in this case, breast cancer, was Suzanne Somers. She created the beloved character Chrissy Snow on Three's Company back in the 1970s. The end of her time on Three's Company was marked by her uh, real displeasure with the fact that her co-star John Ritter was paid so much more than she was. She gave an ultimatum to the producers of the show that she, unless she was going to be paid equal to John Ritter. She didn't want to be part of the show. And so they wrote her off and she eventually left the show after a few seasons. 
Uh, she in, in her fight for gender equality, something that still resonates today. This is obviously somebody that uh, it was a real sort of inspiration to the Francis McDermott's and other people who have taken up that mantle in, in recent years. And she could have drifted into obscurity. She was already sort of a television legend. Yes. Right. At that point, she could have said, you know what? I've been on Three's Company. I'll, I'll sign a few autographs. I can the mailbox money from that. the residuals from the re reruns paid her millions and millions of dollars a year. So she's got a second act, which is the thigh master. And yeah. talk about something people laugh about that made incredible amounts of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. All the way to the bank. I yeah. mean, this was a joke on late night television for a decade, at yep. least, where her infomercials, where she'd put that little little device between her legs, and she she knew the joke. I mean, the thing about Suzanne Summers is she knew that by wearing a leotard on television and infomercials and squeezing her thighs together. Well, not only that, the camera angles were always right up the, the crotch. She's spreading and squeezing the thighs. She knew exactly what she was doing. But she was in on the joke. Yeah, that's I mean, right. Chrissy Snow that's knew right. what was going on. She played a ditz on that show, but she was very wily and perfect comedic timing. And I yeah. thought her ability to transform herself from basically a has-been sitcom star of the 70s and have this whole second act. This is really a lot of a lot of this episode is about the second acts of people because yeah. life is long. And for a lot of these people, life, uh, you know, has to have a series of acts. And she could have just been the Three's Company, you know, star, but she wasn't. And she wasn't satisfied with that. She went on to do the Thighmaster and countless other sort of charities and, and things during her life. And she was really a special person. She meant a lot to a lot of people. And Harvey was very upset by his yeah, summer no, passing. Yeah, no, she was, uh, you know, really well-respected in a lot of different circles. She was also one of the few conservatives in Hollywood. You don't see many people who are outspoken conservatives in Hollywood. She was one of those unapologetically so. I mean, we see that lack of apology coming from the days when she was on Three's Company and demanded what she felt was rightfully hers. And she was going to be unapologetic about that. Then uh, the Thigh Master, unapologetically sort of brazenly commercial when it came to that. And then Miled her way through all of it. Exactly. Exactly right. And talk about a long life. And I wanted to end the podcast with the longest life of all. We will end with the death of Norman Lear at 101 years old in December of this year. He was one of those guys, kind of like Kirk Douglas, who you thought would just never pass. You know, he was always around. And his passing really uh, marked an end to one of the most extraordinary lives in television history. He basically defined what sitcoms would look like back in the 70s, and they still look that way today. With All in the Family, when that show broke, it really cleaved a, a boundary line between what was old television and what television would look like. And what I mean by that is, in the 50s and 60s, you had a lot of wholesome shows. You had Leave it to Beaver. You had Dennis the Menace. You had squeaky clean housewives and that ignored life's kids. realities. Just talked about happy go lucky things. Yeah, they were really sort of aspirational. They were like, this is what the American family should look like in suburbia. Very Eisenhower era uh, sort of views of the world. And when he came in in the 70s, he said, you know what? I'm going to build a, a, an entire show around an antihero, an unlikable bigot like Archie Bunker. And he did it to such tremendous success because he identified with that person. He basically created the antihero, as I say, where you were rooting for that guy. And he was hilarious because he was pinned against foils like, you know, Meathead and all the other characters on the show. And it was he he basically invented the way television looks. Isn't that yep. right? No, he did. And then he spins off from All in the Family, the Jeffersons, the first black family that was on network television in a primetime slot and didn't make them caricatures of what the average white guy thought a black family should be like. They were, you know, he had moved up. He was an insanely successful businessman, successful in a way that Archie Bunker never could have been Archie Bunker, resented George Jefferson for that level of success. 
And he moved up and he became sort of what every American, regardless of color, every American's dream is to succeed where their parents failed or to to better what they that they accomplished. And he Norman later created that character as well. And then, you know, Sanford and Son, Sanford good and Son. times right, right. where they were impoverished and they lived in the projects, but they had, you know, sort of hope and optimism, nevertheless. And with Sanford and Son, he hilariously gave Red Fox sort of the final act of his career. Red Fox was already a legend by that yep. point in time. And he said, you know what, I'm going to build a sitcom around this guy and his interactions with his son. And he he basically his imperial era where he could do no wrong in yep. television. He could launch any show. When he left a show, it was never the same. So, he left All in the Family, and All in the Family was never the same. So what he does with Sanford and Son is he takes one of the funniest people in the world, who's one of the filthiest comedians of all time, Red Fox, sits him in a room basically with his son and his, you know, uh, cast of characters who would sometimes come in and just has him riff. But Norman Lear knew exactly what he was doing. He got this insanely talented guy, and he said, I can create a television show surrounding this guy in his one-room junk house. And that's what he did. He was incredible. And also a man of incredible convictions as well. You know, he started an organization to combat the moral majority in the 80s. So the Christian right was ascendant. He could he could sense that they were ascendant in, in Reagan-era politics. And he said, you know what? Uh, we need an antidote to this. And so he devoted his life to, you know, espousing the views of of the left. You know, he was a proud liberal person and it was a great thing to devote his time to. You know, he had so much money. He could have just rested on his laurels. He collected mailbox money of ungodly amounts. I mean, these shows were in syndication and his real, you know, television heyday sort of ended around the 80s. So there's a lot of life left to live. He just died in 2023 and he didn't do it sitting on his hands. He was a constant presence. He was a comedic legend and he was always willing to sort of lend a an ear or lend a, lend advice to young aspiring TV writers. And he was just universally adored. So it was a very, very big loss. And we'd be remiss if we didn't point it out at the end of this podcast. Well, thanks very much, Derek. It's been a great year. Uh, thanks to all of our production staff, Wild and Branson and everybody else who's helped out with this. It's been an incredible year. We launched in March. It's been more successful than we ever could have imagined, right? It takes up more of our time than we ever could have imagined. Yeah, send in your ideas. We'd love to hear them. We're looking for, you know, episode uh, things to inspire us and talk about in the new year. We'll see you in the new year.